Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we have the privilege of welcoming Melinda Maynor Lowry, whose new book is The Lumbee Indians, An American Struggle. Melinda is a member of the Lumbee tribe, people, and nation, and is also Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I somewhat shamefacedly have to admit that I don't recall ever hearing of the Lumbee Indians before I was contacted about this book, but no more. The official registration for the Lumbee people is more than 50,000, making it the largest American Indian tribe east of the Mississippi River, nestled in North Carolina, just south of Fayetteville. The Lumbees do not have a reservation, but they own their individual property, and the U.S. government has been very reluctant to officially recognize the tribe. That is but one of the numerous flies in the ointment, which cumulatively have led Melinda to assemble a book to attempt to share the history and soul of the Lumbee Nation. Right now, Melinda Maynard Lowry joins us by phone from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Melinda, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. You're actually at your office. What kind of work do you do there? I mean, which classes? I was looking a little bit on online, which courses you teach. I teach American Indian history for the most part. I teach an introductory class on Native American history in the United States. It goes from about 1000 AD to the present, so we cover a lot of time period. But I also direct the Center for the Study of the American South here at UNC Chapel Hill. And I teach an oral history, sometimes Southern history, or 20th century U.S. history. Okay, so it's a broad scope of history. But the Native American, American Indian, we should make clear up front what I got from reading your book, The Lumbee Indians and American Struggle, is that pretty typically just calling people who are Lumbee Indians is perfectly acceptable. It's not objectionable in some way. Well, for us, we grew up referring to ourselves as Indians, and so that's my kind of default word. I explicitly do talk about this with my students all the time because they come in feeling like Indian is a pejorative term or you know a racist term. And I'll say, well, it really depends on your context. The first thing to understand is that indigenous people are members of different nations, and each nation has its own history. The United States has probably 500 or more nations within its borders. Each of those nations prefers to be referred to by the name that they have claimed and chosen for themselves. So the most proper way to talk about somebody for me is as a Lumbee, because that's my tribal nation's name, But we use the word Indian because it's been tossed around in different time periods and histories by people who don't know us as well. And it's a word that can translate sometimes easily to non-natives. But for other Americans, sometimes Native American is confusing. I mean, they think that a Native American is somebody born in the United States. Or they don't know the word indigenous. So that's that's another layer of explanation that you have to provide. All those three words, they have different meanings and they're most appropriate in different contexts. So when I'm talking about multiple tribal histories, 
but the histories of multiple indigenous nations. Sometimes I'll use native or Native American or indigenous, especially if I'm talking about an international context, because folks in Canada are not Native Americans and they're not American Indians. They're first peoples. Folks in New Zealand are not Native American or Native or American Indians. They're indigenous or Maori in particular. So, you know, those words are really important, and I always do take a fair amount of time to talk about them with people. Well, if it's okay with you, I'll use both Native American and American Indian. And at any point you want to help draw out some more of the meaning of those words, that's great with me. By the way, I, a name that was maybe used in the past can become acceptable. I'm perfectly aware of that because, as I mentioned before we got on the phone, I'm Quaker. The official name of Quakers is the Religious Society of Friends. And mm -hmm. the Quaker term was actually applied mainly as an insult, like, you know, you're nothing but a bunch of Quakers because you shake. and that. Yeah. So, so it was actually a negative term that people used that is proudly worn these days, just as gays adopted a term that was uh, an insult at one point, and it's like queer. It's possible to take those names and say, no, we're proud of who we are. Yeah, that kind of goes to the point in some ways of my book, or at least of Lumbee history, is that labels can and should change. They should change according to the self-determining wishes of the people who are being labeled, <laughs> being referred to. American Indian nations have had Many of them have had different tribal names over time. Of course, as languages change and new names are applied, those become an agent of one's self-determination, you know, as much as they are labels provided by outsiders. Sometimes names were given in the past. I think Sioux is maybe one of those. I don't know if that's because of the French, but the first people to make contact with the people frequently had some kind of a name that was not what the native people might call themselves, but which worked for the language that was coming in. I mean, I, I read the full book, and again, folks, the book is The Lumbee Indians and American Struggle. There's been a long journey to arrive at this name Lumbee because with the invasion of the Europeans to the land, so many different tribes, groups of people were mixed, moved, and history eradicated because of suppression. I hope that's an accurate way of relaying part of the history. Yeah, one of the reasons that sometimes people don't know very much about the Lumbees is because our history encompasses so much movement and destruction in a way. Our ancestors were among the very first indigenous people to meet Europeans when they came to the eastern part, anyway, of the continent. And there were not very many Europeans in the territory to write about us. So those written records that Europeans, of course, now use to think about names and labels and histories were quite sparse when it came to our specific ancestors. And one of the reasons for that was just the devastation wrought by disease, as well as enslavement and warfare in the first decades and, well, really first two centuries of the European settlement here. In the process, the history gets told and retold in ways that suit outsiders more than suit the indigenous peoples themselves who are actually experiencing this change. And so one of the things that we do when we teach and write about Native history is that we seek to uncover those sources which can tell us more about what actual indigenous people thought about these transformations that were occurring, rather than focusing all the time on the perspectives brought by Europeans and the particular sometimes misleading labels and names that they would use for things. I know that there's a number of Native groups that were kind of mixed up, moved, 
My sense is that at a certain point, the Lumbees and the people who became known as the Lumbees, what, 60 years ago, they didn't get deported on the Trail of Tears. Was the Trail of Tears, was that movement forced for everyone, or how did they pick and choose who was forced to march over to Oklahoma? The tribes most well-known for suffering the Trail of Tears are the Cherokees, Chickasaws, Choctaws, Seminoles, and Creeks in the southeastern U.S. Those tribes had strong diplomatic relationships, not always alliances, sometimes as enemies with the United States government and the revolutionary period and following. So because of those diplomatic relationships, the United States was recognizing those communities as independent nations and created a legal mechanism to sign treaties with the leaders of those independent nations to exchange land in the East for land in the West. And because many tribal citizens at that time did not agree with that process or the exchange of land, there was a long and protracted, very fraught set of conflicts that led to many of those tribal citizens being literally forced out of their homelands with military detachments. In the case of the Seminoles in Florida, they waged two wars against the U.S. Army to be able to stay in Florida. Many of them were able to stay in Florida as a result of those wars, but many also had to leave. The Lumbees were among other tribes in the southeast who did not have those diplomatic relationships with the United States government. So for a lot of other reasons, we were citizens of the state of North Carolina, private landowners, and our tribal leaders were not in a position to sign treaties to exchange land that was held in common the way the tribal leaders of some of those other communities were. And that was because our families owned land privately as individuals, the same way other Americans did. There's other tribes in the eastern part of the country that were in similar situations. In the case of the Lumbees in North Carolina, Slavery, African slavery, really made questions of race deeply important to the survival of American Indians here. And so the erasure that took place was less physical, less about loss of land and forced migration, as you said, and much more about a kind of legal invisibility that was brought by the racial hierarchy instituted by slavery. We're going to jump into that a little bit, but one of the things that I thought as I was reading this in the book was that it's kind of a catch-22. If you get recognized, then they figure that they can push you around as a tribe. And if you don't get recognized, then you only have individual rights and they don't want to give any of the considerations that they theoretically issued through treaties, most of which we know were not very much honored. So it, it seemed like a catch-22. It is. Get recognized, get deported, don't get recognized, and you can stay there, but you have no rights. Right, or no distinct acknowledgement as a separate nation, right? Pursue your own self-determination. I think in the case of the Lumbees, we're still fighting that battle over recognition, where the federal government has said, we recognize you as Indians, we see you as an Indian people, but we will not give you the kind of acknowledgement that provides a nation-to-nation -nation relationship. So the nation-to-nation -nation relationship is what justifies these separate kind of rights to economic development or health care or educational benefits that other tribes receive. 
Um, Lumbees don't have those kind of separate opportunities to govern themselves because that acknowledgement or that recognition from the federal government is incomplete. And it is a catch-22. You're absolutely right. Because if we had the recognition, then, you know, yes, that would bring the federal government into our orbit on a much greater level and enable them to kind of impose policies that might not be desirable. Sure. And one of the levels of complexity is, as you already mentioned, Melinda, recognition by the state of North Carolina versus the federal government. And sometimes those have been opposed. Well, if you got recognized by North Carolina, we don't have to recognize you on a federal level and so on. So there's many ways in which it's complicated. Absolutely. And that state-federal relationship, which has been the subject of, you know, tons of law <laughs> is has deep impacts on the fortunes of American Indian people. Sure. You know, before we go on, I wanted to mention, I knew I was going to be on the phone speaking with you, and I've been thinking about it, and just recently we had what many places call Columbus Day, and which many other places have now started calling Indigenous Peoples Day. How does Indigenous Peoples Day, Columbus Day, impact you or the Lumbees or maybe more of the Native peoples that you know in general? You know, honestly, I don't have a, a way to sum it up how it impacts me, but it's a couple of different things. I mean, on the one hand, you feel a sense, I feel a sense of bitterness and regret that our nation cannot come to terms with the colonial violence that Columbus initiated on the other hand, I feel like Columbus was one of a parade of people who have exploited people all over the world through a global process of colonialism for the benefit of their own wealth. And of course, Columbus, when you look at his history, he was very much tied into government authority in Europe and church authority in order to enrich himself and enrich his partners in this venture. And so, you know, the idea of memorializing someone who was out for personal gain is also not that unusual in American history. We kind of see that all the time. Columbus, unlike maybe an equally complicated figure, Thomas Jefferson or George Washington, Columbus did nothing to go on to found a democracy or a society that would result in benefit to many individuals. Columbus was primarily invested in enriching himself. So... I feel a certain amount, I think, of resentment and ambivalence over memorializing that individual. Indigenous Peoples Day, I've turned around in my family into kind of a cause for celebration, you know, rather than standing around mourning Columbus or wishing that people would think differently. <laughs> we can call it Indigenous Peoples Day and immediately turn the narrative towards something that's constructive, not for just for the people who suffered the history that Columbus initiated or the series of events that Columbus initiated, but also really generate something constructive and positive for the future that helps us better understand our past and our society as it's come to be. So, you know, I think Indigenous Peoples Day is a wonderful way to look forward, and Columbus Day is kind of a bitter way to look at the past. So, I mean, clearly colonialism was an important worldwide phenomenon, and the global trade that resulted from that is significant. But Columbus was not alone, and his motivations are not necessarily worth the type of veneration that we provide him with now. I had an interesting experience of it. The day that uh, down in Cuba, they recognize the arrival of the boats. It's not our same Columbus Day or anything, but the day that they recognize it, I was, this was back in 2010, I was in Cuba doing my Quaker International Folk Dance Peace Ministry thing with a group of people. We were invited to be part of an event that they were having there 
but they don't recognize it as, you know, hooray, Columbus came. They talk about it in terms of connections and multiculturalism and sharing knowledge and experience from both hemispheres. And so it was a very different thing. Yeah, and that makes a ton of sense, you know, when you think about even the complications of colonialism, the way that the globe has grown closer together. I think cultures in the globe in some ways have learned more about each other because of this profoundly damaging mindset and sequence of events. There is a way to talk about it differently than simply celebrating it as if it was an unqualified good. I hope that many people know that the arrival of Columbus was not an unqualified good. And so renaming the holiday or thinking about celebrating it differently would help us understand exactly the you know, the paradoxes that we live with now. Really, people are taught in grade school, Columbus, great guy, you know, connection up, you know, expands the nation, so on. That's how people are taught to think of it. If they actually read any of the detail, this was not a nice person. And that I'm doing understatement there, of course. I mean, slavery, killing people, stealing, rape. I mean, it, it's pretty horrible. And so when you say it's not an unqualified good, I think you're practicing understatement too. Is that a Lumbee characteristic? <laughs> yeah, I think I was certainly raised to moderate what might be my stronger convictions with words that help people understand where I'm coming from. I don't know that it's a collective trait, but it's certainly something that my family instilled in me, that sense of understatement, or if, if the purpose in life is to get along with those who are different than you and realize what you have to share, sometimes you want to use words that approach, that approach empathy, that allow someone else to see themselves in you and vice versa. And the way we talk, I think, in this particular moment of civil society doesn't leave much room for that. And Lumbees as a whole are much, we do value, it's not civility necessarily the way that modern Americans or most Americans would think of civility. It's not so much about politeness as it is about empathy and saying we're all in this together. And if we're part of the same community, then we have to speak to one another, acknowledging the impact of our words. So maybe that's, maybe that's restraint rather than understatement. <laughs> And if people do pick up your book, and again, folks, we're speaking with Melinda Maynard Lowry, and the book is The Lumbee Indians, and American Struggle. And I'm going to have a link on northernspiritradio.org where you can connect up with her more, melindalowry.web.unc.edu. It's a little bit long, but the link is on Northern Spirit Radio. And so if you come listen to and connect with more of the information I have on Melinda, you'll be able to track down her book. And in the book, you spell out a lot of the distinctives that characterize the Lumbees, but they're not the same distinctives as many other tribes have because, again, I don't know if it's assimilation is exactly what it was. Going to individual ownership and having so many threads of community torn apart by the wave of Europeans that came in, a lot of the history can't be traced as well. By the way, I you know I've never actually explored this, but... I assume that part of the issue is there is not much that we might call recorded history before the Europeans came. Is that true? Was there not a written language? I think I've read about other ways of recording things that were used. Yes. I mean, one of the things we have is, well, in parts of the country, in the Northeast with the Six Nations, you have beads, belts, wampum belts that record treaties, that record agreements in pictographic form. 
of course, lots of territories throughout the West and Midwest, you have pictographs on rock or other, in the case of the Northern Plains, you have winter counts kept on animal hides. In the Southeast, you have a form of communication or anyway, a form of representation of ideas in art, you know, through pottery, symbols found on clothing or other kinds of adornment. I mean, those methods of writing are universal to cultures and Native people have them too. It takes a certain type of research method or a different kind of research to look at those as forms of writing. My own work is much more focused on the time period since Europeans arrived, and so I'm quite interested in and what Europeans wrote down so that I can kind of unpack it and I can read between lines and figure out what do we know about culture and community that helps add a perspective to these written words, determine their meaning a little bit more thoroughly. But I also think about music in my work. I also think about worship. I think about the ways that Lumbee homes are set up, the way that Lumbee food is prepared and grown and served. Those are all ways to talk about history. They're all kind of sources for history, even well beyond you know the written word, often, as you said, written by others, by non-Lumbies. And folks should be aware that the Lumbee tribe is the largest tribe in the eastern part of the United States, east of Mississippi, I believe. And it's more confused by many people because there is no tribal land per se, there's the Robeson County area that has the mass, or the biggest mass, I guess, of Lumbees. But in fact, it is the biggest uh, tribe in the East. It just seems a little bit curious that the tribe that was not officially recognized is the most numerous one. Well, I think that's because our lack of recognition has meant that we are not subject to the same kind of genocidal policies, at least the ones that followed the establishment of the United States as other tribes who did have diplomatic or acknowledged relationships to the federal government. So, for example, the assimilation policies which devastated Indian land ownership in the late 19th century, they devastated the ability of tribes to control their own land. We did not experience that kind of wholesale destruction of our land base that took place over a very short period of time. In our case, our land was lost over a much more gradual period of time. And when we were able to establish ourselves in our homeland and and own land privately, it meant that our families could thrive there without a great deal of interference. And the other areas of interference that people are more familiar with are, for example, Native American boarding schools set up by the federal government to take Indian children away from their homes you know, these were deeply dangerous places in terms of disease and abuse, not just cultural loss, but actual physical damage. And it's created a great deal of historic trauma for communities all over the nation. The Lumbees had the opportunity to control their own school system because of racial segregation. So there's another irony, a paradox embedded in our own ability to control our families and how they could stay together. But our people, I think, thrived or, you know, in some ways have thrived because we have been able to navigate the attitudes about Indians from outsiders in a different way maybe than other tribal communities. We're going to get into some of the details about that, but I want to remind you folks that you are listening to Spirit in Action. I'm Mark Helpsmeet. 
This is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, northernspiritradio.org, and I'm talking to someone who is at least on the border with the South in North Carolina. But on our site, you'll hear all of our 13 years of programs, and you can download them. You can post comments and make your communication two-way. There's a place where you can click to donate, and this is supported entirely by listener donations as opposed to by government or corporations. So please click donate when you come even more so please support your local community radio stations they're so 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 important i would start by donating to them first and i was wondering melinda i'm wondering if the lumbies have their own station no we don't we've had our own newspaper in the past we have a newspaper now still kind of a weekly news magazine We have collaborated, some of us have collaborated with local radio over the years, but, you know, radio has changed a lot over the years. There used to be a much stronger presence on a local community radio station, but the national movement for native radio, which is pretty powerful and and international in scope as well, Lumbies have not taken advantage of that in its current form. Things are transitioning in terms of how do we communicate, and so Internet is becoming more and more important. And I do want to remind people, I have a link that will connect you with Melinda Lowry. If you come to org, you'll find her book, The Lumbee Indians in American Struggle, her most recent book, and also you can connect with her book, Lumbee Indians in the Jim Crow South. And I, There's some stuff about Jim Crow that I specifically think it's important to talk about. The road to having Lumbees existing today has had a lot of trials and tribulations about it. And one of the questions is, what is the name of the group? And again, it was maybe 60 years ago or so that the name finally was nailed down as Lumbee Indians. And there's many other names that were considered before. And that's all in the book, The Lumbee Indians. So please read up on it and start to understand some of the intricacies of it, folks. But what would you say about the names besides the Lumber River? And I think that's part of where Lumbee comes from. People who are, who are Lums, what year did they start identifying themselves most often as Lums? I would say that the name came into more popular use in the late 1940s and 1950s. And the, the fact that we've had different names over time is really just a demonstration of what I kind of feel like everybody should know about Native history, which is that there are many ways to think about the formation of tribal nations and that they form and they reform the same way that other nations do. Their defining moments can sometimes center around events such as a a new name for the nation, and I think that's true in the case of Lumbees, that we became formally known as Lumbees in 1956 when Congress passed an act recognizing us as an Indian tribe, as Indians, but not providing any government-to-government acknowledgement of our sovereignty. So we did not receive any benefits or services normally provided to Indian tribes when Congress passed that law. But the formal name that they wanted to legally institute for our people was Lumbee. And that is a defining moment in our history because not only did we have a name that arose from a a sense of self-determination, it was the first name that we used that we had chosen ourselves. The previous names had been imposed upon us by outsiders and laws passed that, you know, affirmed those names. But this is the first name that we we chose for ourselves. It wasn't a perfect process. It was a flawed process of choosing that name. And many people still don't agree on the use of that name. 
But that's how nations work. You know, Americans don't agree, <laughs> and Native Americans don't always agree either about how they should make decisions about their community. Well, and it has been a struggle. One of the things that you've done in the book, the Lumbee Indians, is an attempt to capture some of the history of your people, including some of the origin myths of the Lumbees, but also some of the exploits of notable members of the tribe going back in time. Your last name, Lowry, seems to pop up frequently, along with lots of other common Lumbee names like Locklear and Oxendine. The immense bonds of kinship are obvious from all these family names. You say repeatedly in the book that the way you know you're a Lumbee is if you know that you're a Lumbee. And that means a relationship to kin and to place instead of the typical governmental criteria of what makes an Indian. So although there's a stereotypical American Indian skin color, for Lumbees, it's all over the place from light to dark and sometimes with some red tint in it. You refer to the 22 who got certified as authentic American Indians, which meant that thousands of others were dismissed as real Indians in the government's eyes because they didn't have the red skin or they had blue eyes or blonde hair or some other trait. As you write about it, I get a sense of your disdain for the ways government has used various criteria over the centuries. And I sense for you that this is just objectionable. Right. Well, particularly the method in which those 22 individuals were designated as one half or more Indian blood by the Bureau of Indian Affairs was to use the same kinds of tests that Nazis used to determine who was of Aryan ancestry and who was of Jewish ancestry. So at the time, in the 1930s, when these tests were done in the United States, they were also being done in Nazi Germany as a way to promote the genocide of Jews. Many Americans don't realize how embedded that thinking and those methods have been in American society. We tend to think of ourselves as having a kind of moral authority that's above all that, but we're not above it at all. The federal government readily used tests, so-called, that makes it sound more scientific than it was, but it was the scientific standard of the day. But testing, measuring people's head size, earlobes, teeth shape, skin color, there was measurements for that even. The idea that you could stick a pencil in someone's hair, if it fell out, you had Indian hair. If it stayed in, you had Negro hair. I mean, that's not what we consider science now. But it was a kind of science in the 1930s that has been used to erase people. And in our case, you know, if you're going to use that method to designate 22 of us as Indians and the rest of us as not, <laughs> all that amounts to genocide. And that's not a, a method of rationally or fairly reckoning with people who predate this government, this United States government, and deserve a kind of respect for their existence. I suppose that nowadays uh, there could be genetic identification, but even that won't fulfill what really identifies person as part of the Lumbee Indians. I think you could have somebody, I assume, just as it used to be, what, if 132nd of you was African-American in Alabama, I think it was, that therefore you were black. You're thinking about the, the so-called one-drop rule. That kind of thing. And so you go back a few generations. If anyone was black back then, then you're black now. And that isn't the way it works now, I, I think. But in terms of Lumbee identification, could you with genetics say something or would that violate the sense of who is identifies as Lumbee now? Being Lumbee now is a matter of culture as well as heritage. 
heritage is less about some kind of European notion of race and racial hierarchy and who's part this and who's part that. It's a matter of belonging. So do you have Lumbee family and does your Lumbee family recognize you as one of them is what we mean when we say heritage. That is blood family, but the way that we've blood family has evolved over time is not strictly limited to a kind of stereotype about you have to look a certain way in order to marry a tribal member or you have to have a certain kind of pedigree in order to belong to the community. I mean, that's just, you know, that's a Western European way of looking at the world. It excludes people and ranks them into hierarchies, and that's not a way of looking at the world that Lumbies embrace as part of who we are. What we are is a network of families that have resided in a place for hundreds and some of us thousands of years. So belonging to that group is a matter of understanding the norms and the kind of cultural preferences and assumptions of that group as much as it is or alongside having some kind of blood or kinship ties to that group. There's lots of ways to then take that identity and be a whole person. You know, it's not something that's kind of static. It really does belong in conversation with all of the other identities that we possess. And as such, it's a Lumbee identity, like any kind of Native identity, is a changing and dynamic thing. It needs to be afforded that respect and not talked about as if it were some kind of static, unchanging phenomenon. One of the things that you'll note, folks, is besides the book, The Lumbee Indians, a previous book that she wrote, Lumbee Indians and the Jim Crow South, you've delved significantly, Melinda, into the history of this interaction. You know, are you in between the Confederacy, the Union back in that time? And, you know, Europeans wanted to have two races, you know, the African and the European, and then the Native folks didn't fit in one category, and one time or another they got categorized here and there, and eventually there's a law in North Carolina says that neither African Americans nor Native Americans are allowed to marry white folks. So at various points, the government around you has attempted to put the Lumbee people in one category or another. Where are we at in that process now in North Carolina? Well, North Carolina is like other states that are still reckoning with how to make its citizens more equal. The people who are have been disenfranchised or disadvantaged in the process of racial bias as it's developed over time are still struggling for that sense of equality, whether it be in voting rights or environmental justice or the freedom to practice religions, you know, that take place outside the kind of mainstream the ability to have equal educational opportunity, all those things are things that Lumbees are still struggling for. The racial labels and categories, the boxes that we've been put in over time, they are kind of struggles that contribute to our strength, I think, to wage these battles now. In particular, with schools and churches, the laws that prohibited marriage between Indians and non-Indians also accompanied laws that provided for separate schools for Indians and separate schools for whites and separate schools for blacks in North Carolina. Now, not every southern state or not every state has had that system, but here in North Carolina, that was what the Lumbee people thought was to their best advantage. When racial segregation emerged as a system of law, Lumbees decided that they were going to basically take advantage of it, adapt to it, and find a way to navigate it so that they could yield the best results, and they felt strongly that the best results would be a school system under their own control. So they essentially kind of yielded authority over over race relations to whites who were governing that system of, of separate schools, 
in exchange for the authority to determine their own children's education. And I think there's been upsides and downsides to that approach. The downsides is that sometimes it further isolates us from the ability to take advantage of, of equal opportunity measures when they exist. But the upside of it is that it really helps maintain and nurture our strong sense of community so that when these battles inevitably emerge, we'll have a strong place from which to fight them, if you know what I mean. Sure, I have the sense. It's another one of those things that I see as kind of a catch-22. Because segregation was used to foist off lower-quality schools and less spending on schools on African Americans and maybe Native Americans, it could be used as a punishment or a control to keep the races separate and keep the racial hierarchy that are used to. So it has that negative side, and that's certainly the side that I confronted as I grew up through the 1960s into the 70s with desegregation and civil rights and all that kind of thing. But you point out the positive aspect of it, which is we have a school that's our school, right? And not everyone was on that same page, even amongst the Lumbees, right? Right. The development of, a ra- of racial segregation was an evolving process that took place over time. And as that system was forming, just like with African Americans, Lumbees have had different responses and reactions to it. Some people have wanted to pursue integration with whites, and others have wanted to avoid integration and instead maintain a degree of separateness that they felt nurtured their community best. I would say that part of the conundrum that that puts us in is there's certainly whites who are trying to do that here now. In Wisconsin, we have a voucher system so that people can go to private schools, and if they can afford it, then they don't have to go to the public schools, so the public schools become less and less percentage white, and the whites are going off to their own schools where they're keeping out almost everybody who's not of the same degree of color of skin. And that seems like a negative thing to me here, but they can claim, well, we should just be able to go to a school that matches our values. But that's different when you're talking about the erasure of a people. I think you're right. Yeah, I certainly see the other side of it. That's a, it's a method of thinking about segregation that certainly seems to support whites' rights to exclude other people from their schools. But you highlight how the power dynamic is quite different. You have to acknowledge that people who have not been afforded the mainstream access to opportunity who the, you know, the Constitution was not created to protect, have an equal right to self-determine their own futures and do so in a lawful way, in a way that, but also in a way that not only matches the United States' ideas about laws, but, but tribal laws. And those tribal native legal systems predate the existence of the United States. And when you're a member of one of those communities, I think members of those communities, they want their own law to be respected as well. They want to have that conversation as complicated and difficult as it is because we recognize, I think I anyway as a Native person, recognize how my history on this land is quite different and a system which affords all of us individual rights is incredibly powerful and important, but it doesn't erase or should not pave over the legal systems that existed here before. You know, a thought that I had, and I'd love your input on this, as I read through the ways that were used to identify who was part of the Lumbee clan, the tribe, the nation, who is a Lumbee Indian and who isn't, 
the various ways that were used over the years, and are you a member of this church might be one of the ways, or who has property going back to this time, uh, you know, the uninterrupted chain of government amongst the tribe. All of these ways were approached. It always looked like the federal government was being very careful not to include the Lumbees or to limit the number of people who might be able to claim identity in this group. A lot of different identities were juggled. I thought that a really good way to say who is Lumbee is to say who has suffered from discrimination because they're an Indian and that if a person was not allowed to marry a white person because they're Indian and if their rights were taken away in different ways like that, it seems pretty obvious that it would be hypocrisy for the government to say, no, you're not an Indian now. Right. I mean, I think that's right. The problem of federal recognition is one of hypocrisy. You know, fundamentally, it's hypocritical for a government who came in and took over other governments that existed here to then turn around and say those original governments are not legitimate and you have to prove yourself to us how you're legitimate and in what way you feel you deserve to be here. (laughs) You know, and Native people, I think, consider that ludicrous. But that is the essential battle that we're kind of fighting. As I read The Lumbee Indians in American Struggle by you, Melinda Maynor Lowry, I think sections of the book that were the most juicy for me were in part the history, the colorful people of the past. You know, I'll go live in the swamp, a swamp which is three miles by 10 miles, and you'll never catch me, and I'll play Robin Hood. And there's a number of characters from Lumbee history who are delicious. And I'm tempted to talk about them today, but I'm really even more tempted just to say, folks, go and read the book, The Lumbee Indians, and you'll catch that history. It's it, There's a lot of delicious pieces to it. How hard is it to pull together that history? And after all, you are Associate Professor of History at University there in North Carolina. How hard is it to pull those threads together? Well, it's been a fun challenge. I mean, one of the things that's, that's hardest, I think, is what all you have to leave out. The juicy characters I put in there are not by any means all of them. (laughs) There's so, so many, and because our community is large and has been fortunate to thrive over time, we have hundreds, thousands of family stories. And so the book is an attempt to kind of say which of these family stories can we as a people but also Americans learn about to help them understand how the American nation has formed alongside the Lumbee Nation So if you think about the book as a series of kind of juicy characters with good stories, that helps you make choices. (laughs) Juicy characters with good stories that also teach lessons about the formation of nations and the kind of identities that get shared and sometimes that are dividing over time, then that helps you make choices about what to include. But it is really, it's been difficult to have to leave out so much. I think other Lumbees will come along and tell their family stories. I mean, we have been telling our stories for centuries, and we'll continue to do so. And this was a good opportunity for me to just tell a few of them, and the ones especially that I think can help us understand the history of the American nation a little bit better. I'm sure you understand, Melinda, that I'm pacifist-oriented, but in spite of that, I really found myself cheering for the Lumbees as they faced down the Ku Klux Klan. That is such a delicious story that you tell there, too. Yeah, it's another singular moment in our history, and one that 
demonstrated how collective action can work to banish people from a community that don't represent, you know, your views. The Lumbees ambushed a KKK rally in the 1950s after that Klan leader burned crosses on the lawns of two Lumbee families. Interestingly, another interesting thing about that episode, in addition to the violence that took place, it was a violent episode. It wasn't nonviolent protest. It was widely cheered by law enforcement, by the governor of North Carolina, by the people who the Klan maybe believed they were supporting. The law enforcement and the politicians in the state said unequivocally that the Lumbees were on the right side in trying to take down people who were invading their territory with values that they abhorred. Unfortunately, I don't think we would necessarily see that kind of alliance of ideas today especially when people who are legitimately threatened defend themselves. The attitude of law enforcement and politicians seems to be to blame the victims. And in the 1950s, interestingly, that was not the case, at least with this one example. And folks, there's more stories that you want to capture by reading the book. One of the things that I was struck by is the role of not only schools, but of churches in uniting the people. In this case, we're talking, I don't know if it's exclusively or almost completely in terms of Christian churches. I'm fully aware that a lot of the native peoples across the USA, uh, various nations, there's a lot of Christianity within the circles. It's not seen as antithetical. How is it seen amongst the Lumbees, and how are the Lumbees divided up? Maybe, you know, a third of them don't practice anything, and a third of them are Baptist. And like you, Episcopals, were you successful in growing the Episcopal Church when you were a young woman? Lumbees have been Christians longer than most other Southerners. (laughs) Um, Actually, you know, when we think about when most Americans became Christian, it was probably the first or second Great Awakening because people living in rural societies you know, were practicing some combination of forms of worship that were deeply embedded in the natural world and didn't necessarily involve a great deal of organization or building institutions the way that we've seen the Christian church evolve in more urban areas. But Lumbees embraced Christianity readily, I think, because of those centuries of movement of warfare and slavery had decimated so many of our ancestors that over time the original rituals that brought us closer to the spiritual world had been forgotten or were not longer were no longer practiced some things hung on very clearly but other things basically got subsumed in the loss of individuals who carried that knowledge and it was not passed on over generations and christianity emerged as a way to again to kind of build institutions that we could control for ourselves something that was very important as the United States began to develop and racial hierarchies were instituted and we were not at the top of those racial hierarchies. So having institutions that you could control that were not at the whims of others was a very attractive way of maintaining our hold on our community and our land. And Christian churches you know, have been a phenomenal opportunity for that in many different American communities. So for us, The tendency to practice Christianity, it fits right alongside, I think, our desire for reciprocity, the ways in which our families function in reciprocal ways are reinforced by many Christian teachings, as well as Old Testament teachings. The value of do unto others is something that, you know, Lumbees practiced well before we ever knew about Christianity. That's something that, you know, I was certainly raised with and my my Lumbee family takes deeply seriously our Christian faith. 
you grew up as uh, pretty much of a city girl, right? You didn't grow up right in Robeson County. Although I understand, you know, you always came home for Lumbee Homecoming and you had all those connections to the place without actually living there. Have you actually lived within the county or the few counties there for an extended period? I have off and on. When I met my late husband, I was living there and he and I lived there together for a number of years. And then there were periods of time when I would basically live there for a few months at a time and then go back to work wherever I was working and spending summers there. But I've always thought of it as home home. I have a home in Durham, which is about two hours away from Robinson County. And then home home is Lumbyland, is where my family resides, where we always visited, what my parents always called home. My parents were both raised there and had me born there. But whenever they talked about home, they were not talking about our house in Durham. They were talking about their homeland in Robinson County. And so that's how I always think of home. I want to touch on just a few other things. Again, besides the book, The Lumbee Indians, and also the book, uh, Lumbee Indians in the Jim Crow South, besides those books, there's a number of other publications and some videos you produced. One article that you wrote that I was interested in was about Lumbee foodways. And so I was wondering what kind of special food would be Lumbee. And faith is clearly something that's important to you and to the Lumbees, I think. A video that you co-produced is called In the Light of Reverence, which was on PBS back in 2001. And Sounds of Faith is a video that you produced, directed, edited. What are those videos about? What are you capturing in those? And tell me about food, because I love food. <laughs> the videos are my interest in American Indian and specifically Lumbee culture really kind of started with music and religion. In particular, this question that I would get sometimes from people about how can you be Christians when Christians came over here to steal your land and take your life? I was raised not knowing anything but Christianity, and I didn't see a paradox there. I saw a connection between value systems that made a great deal of sense to me. And in particular, music in my family was a way to transmit those values, the importance of togetherness, the importance of spending time with family, of learning from your elders and listening to them, is reinforced in my family through music. So I started thinking about the connections between Christianity and music early on in my career, so made that first film, Sounds of Faith, about Lumbee gospel music. The film I then went on to co-produce, In the Light of Reverence, takes a very different look at Native religion. It looks at Native American sacred places in the western United States and three different tribal communities. And the question of land and religion and the way that, that Christianity in particular has a very narrow view of place and of land a view that's so narrow that it constitutes exploitation in many cases of Native religions and Native communities. You know, that was a film project that challenged my view of Christianity, you know, because many of the tribal members we were speaking to about sacred places felt that Christian versions of sacred place were just totally disrespected their own versions of sacred place. And that's true. Most Christians look at the church or a cathedral or some kind of historic site perhaps as sacred. When churches get burned, Christians are very upset. But those same Christians will go and violate native customs about sacred places, particularly outdoor spaces, without thinking about it. So that kind of hypocrisy, I wanted to go on to explore whether that was a fundamental feature of Christianity or whether it was an aspect of the way Christianity is practiced and perpetuated in this country. 
And what I found, again, returning kind of to Lumbee forms of Christianity is that there's elements of all religion that are going to not match the particular proclivities or customs of a particular community. But the fundamental tenets of Christianity are something that are enduring, and they endure for Lumbees as they endure for other Americans. I think we have to be deeply mindful, though, of how those fundamental principles can get twisted around for explicitly short-term or self-serving aims. So the way that Columbus talked about Christianity is not the way that Native people embrace Christianity, those who embrace Christianity. It's not the way that Native people embrace Christianity, but it's unfortunately kind of eclipsed or shut out many of the ways of Christian worship that Native people find useful and constructive in their societies. That film, Sounds of Faith, also has a couple of scenes of Lumbee's cooking and Lumbee food, and I filmed at my grandparents' house when, at our Thanksgiving celebration. This is way back in 1996. Um, <laughs> and so being able to see my grandmother, or feel, having the opportunity to film my grandmother chopping collard greens sticks with me to this day as I try to describe to people what's kind of distinct about Lumbee foodways. It's less about what's different from other Southern food or the food of other cultures in the United States and more about the ways in which it's authentic or true to its roots or that it brings together family and community in ways that bond us so we see ourselves in one another when we see how other Lumbee families chop their collards. We have a pretty distinctive way of cutting up collard greens and cooking them. That's a way of recognizing ourselves in each other it brings us together, binds us together as a community. It also provides an entry point, if you're not Lumbee, to understand a little bit about us, maybe not a great deal of depth about our history or the complex things we've talked about today, but it's a way to kind of taste our community in a sense and kind of understand the unique things that we bring to, to any table, metaphorical or literal. Well, there's a lot of those things on the table in the book, The Lumbee Indians, An American Struggle by Melinda Maynard Lowry. I have a link to her on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website. If you can memorize this, write it down quickly, melindalowry.web.unc.edu. She's Associate Professor in History Department at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She's the Director for the Center for the Study of the American South. And I hope she can cook as well as her grandmother does, because I'm hoping <laughs> to be down there next February. I've enjoyed so much getting to know about the Lumbee people. The Lumbee Indians still have a road ahead of them to get recognized by the U.S. federal government. But I think with your help and so many other good Lumbees working together, that we can bring alignment of reality in accord with the reality that you already know there in the Lumbee hometowns. Thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And folks, remember the link to connect up with Melinda Maynard Lowry is on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.